The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Welcome, everyone. And, um, you know, we can find a lot of spaciousness even when we're close together. So uh, I, I encourage you to, uh, to move in a little bit <clears throat> so I don't feel so lonely. <laughs> There's a lot of distance here. Thank you. And I also want to thank Andrea uh, Fella, who's the regular Thursday night Dharma leader here, uh, for inviting me to be here with you tonight, and I'll also be here next uh, Thursday evening. Excuse me, my allergies are acting up a bit today, so I'm... uh, kind of runny nose and eyes and scratchy throat. So the title of the talk tonight is Going Around, Coming Around. And I find sometimes in meditation practice it's helpful to pull back and take a look at a bigger view. Tonight we began with um, with a simple and totally always useful and wonderful meditation practice of being with our breathing, being with our bodies and our breathing. But sometimes it's nice to look at other things, and Buddhism offers a lot of other things. So I'd like to explore with you one of the tools that uh, Buddhist philosophy and practice offers. And what I'm going to do is speak briefly about this subject called dependent origination, which is kind of a big subject in Buddhism. And it's so big that over the 2,500, 2,600 years, there have been many books written on it and many talks given on it. And uh, it's, it's really a very large subject. So all I'm going to do is offer, as best I can, just a really brief um, Overview, so that so that especially maybe if you're not so familiar with it, you have you hear a little bit of of what it is um, and what's involved in it. Um, it's um, you may have actually seen depictions of of uh, dependent origination because it's often presented graphically as a wheel. Uh, and it's called the Wheel of Life, or sometimes the Dharma Wheel, depending on which tradition. Um, and in preliterate time, this wheel is portrayed with 12 spokes, and they each have a name, which comes from the Buddhist texts, and that's what the Buddha talked about, and we'll, we'll be getting into some of what, what he said. Uh, and in later Buddhism, this wheel also has 12 uh, um, areas, and those, we will usually have images that illustrate the conditions of each part of this wheel of life. So it's an early oral teaching of the Buddha, and it's in the Pali Canon Samyutta collection. Um, And you can look it up uh, on Access to Insight or many places on the web, but Access to Insight's a really good one, easy to use. So in that early teaching, the Buddha doesn't call it a wheel, but describes it logically in language as a set of relationships among uh, the causes and effects of the patterns, the thoughts and actions of of our lives. So there are a couple of key things about this um, set of relationships. They depend on each other. They, uh, they have a cause-and-effect relationship. Um, and most importantly, um, from the point of view of practice, these relationships are dynamic. So that means in this matrix that the Buddha describes of human experience, there are opportunities for choice and for transformation. And this was an unprecedented view of human life, both psychologically and philosophically. And it remains a very uh, 
distinctive character uh, of, of Buddhism. It remains a very distinctive view and way of looking at human life. So the Buddha said in various places that this insight of his, seeing this, the whole thing came together for him, um, in this sort of circular dynamic pattern of causes and effects and relationships as related to humans, he said that this is one of the two central insights he awakened to. And the other is the Four Noble Truths, uh, which um, you've probably heard of, but I'll just review them very briefly. Um, Suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, and the Eightfold Path to End Suffering, which includes view, purpose, speech, action, livelihood, energy, effort, mindfulness, meditation, and concentration. And um, the Buddha really seemed to be a gestalt kind of thinker type of person because um, these two teachings are very succinct, actually. You know, it's only a short... Uh, there are longer versions and shorter versions of, in the written versions, but supposedly what I know, and I'm not a real scholar, but I uh, have done a little reading in, in this area. Um, the, one of the earliest forms, it's, it's, a very, it's just a few paragraphs, it's a page uh, of this teaching of dependent origination, and likewise the Four Noble Truths. Because the Buddha famously said, I teach one thing, one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. This was his interest and purpose to see how human beings got caught in the net of, um, of unsatisfactoriness. I'm using the word suffering because that's a pretty common um, translation of the term dukkha in Pali. Um, many people think it's kind of an old-fashioned term or it has implications that it's heavy and suffering. Although I think, in, a, in an experiential level, sometimes we can, we can, at certain times, certainly we can real, all relate to the fact that we do feel like we're suffering. But other people say unsatisfactoriness or, or angst or anxiety. Um, sort of more modern philosophers like Sartre looked at this, looked at this, um, this sense that humans have of like something's not right. And the Buddha also looked at that and, and thought, I just have an intuition, maybe I'm, you know, this is, <laughs> he didn't really say this, but uh, this is what I imagine, he said, that, that maybe something could be right. <laughs> so I'm going to look into this. Um, and in a real sense, the whole encyclopedia, which the Pali Canon is like that big, is a manual of this unsatisfactoriness suffering um, how it comes to be, and how to find ways out of it. And there are many, many, many ways out of it. So dependent origination is a concise outline of these interrelations of the causes of suffering and the possibilities of ending our, our suffering. It offers a psychological description of our personal worlds, of how they're put together moment by moment. So, and it's not only tonight I'm going to be sort of giving the larger view, stepping back a bit, but it's also kind of a close-up view. I mean, you can look at it, looking at it, you can focus in on it. And we'll do that a little more. I'll touch on a little bit that this week and a little more next week. We'll do that. So for me, in modern terms, the gyroscope may be a more apt metaphor for the teaching of dependent origination than a wheel. But the gyroscope wasn't invented, really, until the 1850s by uh, the French physicist Foucault and then other people, of course, contributed before him, but basically the form we know now. Um, so this model wasn't available 2,500 years ago. So a wheel was kind of what they had, but it, it's uh, the gyroscope is complex, three-dimensional, and dynamic. It's a dynamic piece of equipment. So in a way, for me, it fits better because when you have the, the gimbals, the parts that go around, and you have the what they call the journal, the flat part in the middle, and then you have the, the center piece, you know, 
it all can go around and a gyroscope can stay in a very stable position. Now there are new wrinkles with gyroscopes and so they're used in uh, space travel and and air travel and navigation and also they're looking into... I mean, they're in in, uh, smartphones now, little tiny gyroscopes, which help um, connect us um, to where... So that so that the towers know where the phones are, um, and then they're also doing research into really tiny nano gyroscopes to for medical reasons to enter the to go into the human body and fix things up that need fixing up. So, but dependent origination, you know, also has these micro and macro applications, but in our own heart mind, bodies. So when we pay attention through mindfulness, we can see what the Buddha was talking about when he said, and this is another famous formulation, uh, like a one-sentence thing you can remember, this arising that arises, this ceasing that ceases. So this is the basic teaching of dependent origination, which is also called dependent arising. Causes, condition, effects, and then those effects condition further, the, the possibility of further causes arising. So we can see and even feel the freedom that we have to choose our mental states and attitudes when we look closely. We can see, for example, irritation rise or anger, uh, and we can see it cease. It ceases on its own often, but we can also see when we can choose to to move away from it. And we likewise, with any emotion or any mental state or any thought, with joy. But if we're ignorant with this felt sense of joy or irritation or sadness or calmness or whatever it is, that's when we miss the opportunity for transformation. So mindfulness is the foundational tool to access this dynamic of dependent origination. Mindfulness itself is easiest to access, especially when we're new to it, by quieting the body and mind. So when we do this, for example, through breathing meditation, breathing meditation is just something you can do your whole life. It's always with you and you never get in any state beyond it. (laughs) So it's always a good um, thing to do. And when we do quiet our body and mind through simply sitting and breathing, we can see clearly and directly how things come about in the spheres where we do have some choice which is in our own hearts, our own minds, and even our bodies to a certain extent. But especially important uh, for mindfulness applications in terms of choice and dependent origination are our thoughts, our emotions, our six senses, and uh, feeling tones. So the six senses are the ordinary body ones, sight, sound, smell, touch, taste, and the sense of consciousness called mental uh, uh, or mind in Buddhism traditionally. And feeling tones are the kind of the charges and the valences we have with each experience. Each experience that we have is accompanied by a feeling tone of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And mindfulness allows us to see through its moment-by-moment non-judgmental attention and its quality of knowing what we are doing as we do it and whether what we're doing is suitable or not. So, actually, when I've taught longer courses in these things, I've found it, um, the students have told me it was helpful to remember that there's two these two parts to mindfulness, and they they actually have terms are talked about quite a bit in certain texts, and they're called bare attention and clear comprehension. So that, that bare attention 
is the moment-by-moment non-judgmental quality where we just see our experience flow by and we don't say, like with our breathing, we don't get excited about it because we're having a bad thought or a good thought or we don't kind of latch onto something or push it away or get excited about it. We just notice in a non-judgmental way that this is coming up. Oh, I'm having this thought, I'm having this sensation, I'm feeling irritated, now that's going away, or I'm still feeling irritated. And then the clear comprehension is, uh, we're, we're actually mentally aware, so the prefrontal cortex, I mean our whole consciousness gets involved, we're aware of what we're doing too. It's not just kind of like zombie-like sitting back and saying, you know, watching the flow. And We're aware of what we're doing it and we have some power of agency um, with clear comprehension. We know what we're doing and whether it's suitable, so therefore we can make choices about what we're doing. But dependent origination isn't like a grand unified theory of anything. It's, it's actually very human-centered. It doesn't talk about the cosmos or how life arose or evolved. Or it, doesn't, it doesn't do that. Um, but it is, according to the way the Buddha taught it, a un- it is a universal human law or dynamic, relating to consciousness, perception, and action. So it can help us see in the moment when we start to look at these links in the wheel and how they relate to one another, how our own gyroscope is spinning, and whether we want it to keep on spinning like that or not. So maybe another way to say this is that in this... uh, gyroscope spinning around of of all these conditions and links affecting each other and affecting each other not just forward and back but interacting like the gyroscope the two gimbals also interact you know so one's going this way and one's going that way but they're all spinning around like that's us the gyroscope and then but these all these factors are are going on in us mental factors physical factors, emotional factors, inner factors and outer factors. There's the outside world and there's our inner world. Uh, So this is um, a pretty amazing teaching, actually. Um, So what dependent origination kind of outlines is the completely contingent nature of things in our lives, how everything is affected by everything else. But it doesn't try to tease out what, how every, particularly how the outside actions that affect us, where they come from, or their their causes, or their conditions. It especially focuses on how our actions relate to our, I mean, the teachings that derive from it about that, particularly about feeling tone uh, about how noticing what our relationship to our experience is, how we feel about our experience. Um, It particularly points to what our perception is and how we can see how those are related to heedlessness or unawareness or awareness or mindfulness which is where we have the choice, when we're aware of them. And if we're not aware of them, if we're not paying attention or heedless, then we don't often have much choice. Um, So it's not exactly simple, because it takes into account the inner and outer forces or gimbals of the gyroscope. But as I said, the Buddha, specifically in very many texts, consistently refused to direct his attention to or answer questions about why we're disposed to act or react in certain ways. He was a very pragmatic teacher. He said, we'll just put the why 
I mean, once again, I imagine he didn't say this exactly, but just put the why aside and just focus on the what. What can be done now? What can we do now? So he said, in many different ways, in order to stop anguish and suffering, look to see what's happening in your own psycho-physical being moment by moment. And when you bring mindfulness to this, which is the tool you can use to see what's going on, um, you can see this bigger view of what's happening and how your relationship is to yourself and to the outer world. Uh, It sounds a bit paradoxical that by close and bare attention to ourselves, we can see that we don't have to take things personally and we have choices about them. So in one, I'm going to kind of condensing one of the famous um, teaching parables that he used, which is the story of the lute, and that's also in the Samyutta Nikaya. Um, He said, "We, we look at the whole of of who we are. So that's where the whole wheel or gyroscope comes in and not just the part. So then we can begin to understand and know for ourselves that we are systems of interdependence of feelings, perceptions and thoughts and consciousness all interconnected within us and with others and with the outside world, with the material world, with all of it, with everything we know as humans. And he said, investigating in this way, if we look at the whole, we come to realize that a big big, uh, corollary insight that there is no me or mine in any one part of this. Just as sound does not belong to any one part of the lute. You can take the lute apart and you can have the strings and the fret and the top board and the sides and the baseboard, but you won't get sound out of that. It's the whole that produces the sound. So it's uh, a very process-oriented way of looking at things. So it brings some good news that we can, you know, stop the gyroscope if we want. I mean. Uh, or stop it from, or stop the spin, alter the spin, um, and step out of habits and patterns that we have. And we can change these patterns even in relation to some outer conditions. For example, I have a tendency to like warm weather and sunshine. But I live in Santa Cruz, which has a good amount of cool weather and fog. So after I wake, I open the curtains and I notice if the fog is out or the sun is out. And I can choose to obsess about how long it's going to take for the fog to burn off if the fog's out there. Or I could notice that maybe I have a little unpleasant feeling because the sun isn't out yet. And if I didn't notice that mindfully, then that small feeling may multiply, especially if something happens like when I go to make tea, then the stove is a little tricky to light and I have to fuss with it and then it's not noticing these um, these moment by moment small things that can that that creates that condition that that conditions the next condition and it's not always that it's a a linear you know that A equals B because there's so many factors at play and that's kind of the beauty of the dependent origination there's so many factors at play that, it, that a lot of complex actions are going on. But by keying in on our own psychophysical system, we can see how this process works. So I can just be mindful of that, whether I have an unpleasant feeling, or I may notice the sun's out and I feel happy. And then I could project, oh, I feel happy if I'm not paying, being mindful. This is going to be a great day, which it's always nice to say that to yourself, but that may or may not be true. 
So I could see, if I'm mindful, there's a little bit of holding on to my mood. And that can often set up the condition for disappointment um, if something happens in the day that doesn't turn out so well. But it's, not a, it's fine to be happy. It's wonderful to be happy. In fact, there, there are happiness uh, meditations in, Buddha, in, Buddha, in Buddhism. So that's a great thing. But the dependent origination addresses our a tendency to attach and to cling to uh, happy, pleasant states and to push away uh, unhappy, unpleasant states rather than meeting them with mindful, non-judgmental attention and seeing uh, what possible actions we might take. Uh, just the fact of holding on, clinging, and this can be very subtle. So this whole dependent origination is, the Buddha called it, he, the, these are his words, he said it's, it is a profound teaching when he was asked by some people who came to visit him and wanted his teaching. and He said, this is profound and subtle. So, um, so, but saying that isn't saying that it's easy. So some application is required and some confidence uh, to persevere when things don't look like they're shifting. And you think, well, I'm really being mindful and I can see. Yeah. But I'm still grumpy or I'm still, I still feel like I'm clinging to something. Um, but we'll get into that more next week. Bhante Gunaratana, who's a wonderful writer and teacher, is a Sri Lankan monk who's been in the U.S. for about 40 years and his book, Mindfulness in Plain English, is a classic and an excellent resource for the basics and refinements of mindfulness. And he has a verse about our relation to life that I think is, it resonates with me and this subject. He writes, Meditation is participatory observation. What you are looking at responds to the process of looking. What you are looking at is you. And what you see depends on how you look. So this poem points to a kind of physical and even physics dynamic. Um, There's a relationship between what we see and us, how we look. Furthermore, how we see is also a relationship between the conditions we see in us. If we see something and we're not mindful of our negative or positive reaction to it, we're more likely to repeat these patterns and habits. And then that feeling of angst or anxiousness or or suffering starts to come up for us. In short, you know, what goes around comes around. So the more we repeat things, we're such creatures of habit, human beings, and that's really a good thing. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful thing. Buddhism particularly points to habits of wholesomeness, happiness, uh, mental health, peace, many things like that. So, there's another proverb in English cause that, that goes uh, to come full circle, which takes us that, to dependent arising and transformation. And I'll speak more on that next week also, along with the nitty-gritty kind of practice, uh, some more details. But I'd like to end tonight with two short gatas, and gatas are mindfulness verses. They're usually just four lines, they're always short. And, and these are kind of practice shortcuts um, that can help condition our waking in the morning and falling asleep at night, and I find them very helpful. So one is a variation of Thich Nhat Hanh's uh, waking up gata. And I'll repeat them if people want to write them down, or anyway, it's good to hear them twice. I'm sure you you can look it up if uh, 
I, I have it in a book, but I'm, but I'm sure you can probably find it easily uh, online. So it goes. Um, Waking up this morning, I smile and vow to live mindfully in each moment. Twenty-four new hours are before me when I can meet each being with ease. Waking up this morning, I smile and vow to live mindfully in each moment. Twenty-four new hours are before me when I can meet each being with ease. So this is an aspiration and a vow. And to remember that uh, our old friend mindfulness will be there for us when we don't meet each being with ease, when we get ticked off because someone cuts somebody off on the freeway or whatever. We can just be mindful of that. So if you can do this immediately on opening your eyes or when your feet first touch the floor, that's great. Or But, but any time that you can do this in the morning, um, like at your, one, an easy way uh, I find is at your first intentional action, such as going to the bathroom or brushing your teeth. And just say this and see if that conditions your day in any way. You have to try it for a few days. So here's where the perseverance and the application come in. And so Aitken Roshi, uh, who is a very well-known American Buddhist Zen priest in Hawaii, who was also a very socially engaged Buddhism, he was considered by many people the the father of... uh, of social activist Buddhism in this country. And he's also a wonderful poet, so I recommend reading any, any of his poetry, if you like poetry. Robert uh, Aitken Roshi, Robert Aitken, yeah. So his sleeping gatha is, as I fall asleep, I vow with all beings to enjoy the dark and the silence and to rest in the great unknown. As I fall asleep, I vow with all beings to enjoy the dark and the silence and to rest in the great unknown. So I thank you very much for your attention and uh, please do Please do offer any comments or questions you might have. This is the valuable part of our exchange, what you bring to it. (laughs) And uh, we have a mic to pass around to you because uh, this goes out on audio dharma. Um, So, thank you. Oh, that was just really good for me. Thank you. Um, I was um, happy to be reminded about the gatas with Chitnat Han. You know, I have his book and everything, but I haven't used it for a long time. And I'm real excited now to go home and start getting it out and using it. I use things periodically, different things that come up, you know. And um, I have two really good friends right now. Actually, I think well, one of mine was from the song Go. Where's the other one from? I can't remember right now. But they're both from um, Vietnam. And so um, I think this is really wonderful. Thank you so much. Good, good talk. You're welcome. Who else would like to talk? So as you were describing the wheel or the, the gyroscope, I'm, I'm very visual, and I kept wanting to like see some sort of diagram. You, you'd mentioned that there were earlier... Diagrams. I was just wondering if you could recommend a place to to see some sort of visual representation of what you're talking about. Does something like well, that the, exist? Well, the Tibetans have done um, a lot. They're 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 kind of an art an artistic kind of um, form of Buddhism. I mean that they they do a lot with imagery in the Tibetan tradition. And so if you if you look up uh, Wheel of Life. Um, 
or dependent origination, you'll end up with getting images of Tibetan tankas. And so then they have, you know, in brief, the wheel, uh, different people started at different, they start the, the articulation of the wheel at different places, either with birth or ignorance. But, um, so when I've forgotten all of them because I, I don't have much experience in the Tibetan tradition. But I think, like, birth is a baby. <laughs> birth is a small, you know, child. And sometimes even I think I've seen a pregnant woman. That's not traditional in Tibetan, but somewhere along the line I saw that, you know, somebody kind of giving birth. But, um, or a pregnant woman. I think that was what it was. And then ignorance, I think, is usually a blind person. <clears throat> and then the... the um, so the, then right... Right at the end of the wheel, before birth, there's, or on, on, the, on the 11 o'clock side of birth, there's, a, there's death, which is a skeleton, you know. And then there's um, often greed, hatred, and delusion are, are in the center. And those are characterized by sometimes a pig or sometimes different animals, sometimes. So it's things like that. It's actually life scenes. So it's very human-centric. Uh, and you can find those if you look up Wheel of Life or Dar- um, Dharma Wheel. Other wheels are called Dharma Wheels. With these, these terms are a little elastic depending on tradition in, in Buddhism because there, Buddhism is a big tradition, I mean a big, a big uh, package. <laughs> so, uh, but I think you can find that, you'll find those kinds of representations. And then the early Buddhists, the Theravada, which basically this center is grounded in, uh, and there are many, and all over India, there are the early, and I think um, just the, a wheel with 12 spokes, and it's usually in gold. So there are, there are you know, but everyone knows that's the Buddhist uh, wheel of life. Or... And then does the 12 represent a year, like 12 months? No, it's not 12 months. It's kind of like, it's pieces of our lives, like what, like our, what part of it is the feeling tone I talked about. That's one spoke on the wheel. Uh, so it's not at all the 12. And I will, I will bring in some, even some, um, maybe I'll do that next week. If you, I don't know if you'll be here then, but, um, you know, I can do that if there's interest in it. And, um, and, and also I was planning to, it can be a little overwhelming if you start right off with this, with this linguistic, philosophical articulation of the wheel. And then, but then a lot of people do talk and ask questions then, I must say. So I'm hoping next week that will happen. Thank you. You're welcome. I guess I'm a little confused now. Is the wheel... We, there's, there's a. It's going around the wheel. I mean, it sort of has each one causes or is a relation to. It has a relation to yes, and th- there are different. Th- that is true. So that's the way. That's a very. Tra- well, that's one way to look at it. And and according to different points of view in Buddhism, there are, you know, some will will emphasize the strict causality of one leading to the other. And, and then without emphasizing the interrelationships and the moving back and forth. And others emphasize that more. But there are, but, but people do tend to, as far as I understand, agree that there are certain specific places, and we will definitely get into details on that next week, about where, uh, where these habits, patterns can be broken. And feeling feel contact, Vedana, is one of those places, for example. When we, when we begin to notice as part of our everyday experience, particularly um, how we feel about our experience, then we have some space and some to make choices about whether we're going to stick with that feeling or whether we're going to amplify that feeling or, uh, or change that feeling. But there is a causal relationship. It is about cause and effect. And there's, yes. So, 
Can you just say a little bit more then about the relationship between mindfulness and the wheel? I mean, I'm, I'm understanding that it's that in the broad sense, mindfulness is what keeps us from being trapped in the wheel. Would that be right, or something along? No, those mindfulness is actually not part of the wheel. It's not in the wheel. It's it's a tool to access the place, the the points in the wheel where you can have some. Um, you don't have a lot of choice about being born. For example, the wheel sort of begins with that, and then you die. You don't have a lot of choice about that. So, but there are places that you do have choice, and mindfulness is um, is a tool. Which, so it's actually kind of a different teaching, but it definitely relates to this this wheel. Otherwise, without it, you're just going to be, you know, stuck in your patterns. Yeah, that's that's sort of what I meant. So that's the trick to. To figure out where you have some room to move or not, yes. you're not just kind of caught up. In yes, that you're in not a just caught up way. spinning around. I mean, I'm sure we all know this because, um, you know, when we're worried about something, we tend to just chew it over. <laughs> you know, we tend to just mull it over, and that's just uh, that. That's actually very human. I mean, it's human. It's not. There's nothing wrong with that. That's that's part of our nature. That's the way we are. But sometimes it's not helpful or wise or it doesn't feel right or it's not we can't and in fact it's not creative I say that you know that the creativity comes in just in those places where there where we can make the choices that's also part of us as humans a deep embedded part being creative but that's about seeing clearly what options are available or what new thing we might come up with you know in any given situation, our relation to ourself, or anything, you know, our work, whatever. So thank, thank you, you for that. No, that's, that's helpful. Thank you. Are you familiar with uh, Daniel Siegel? He works with Jack Hornfield, uh, Bit. You know, the name rings a bell, but I, I, I don't think I, I've met him or I've done a teaching with him or anything. He, yeah, it does a, ring a bell. He's a, a psychiatrist. Yeah. Um, but he, um, he's, well, I guess what you call a neuropsychologist. He talks about neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. And he uses a, a wheel when he's working with patients and mm-hmm. he, he teaches meditation. Well, he uses meditation technique. And, mm-hmm. and just as you were saying, mindfulness as the tool but he uses the image of the wheel with with the hub being the awareness of the inner self mm-hmm. and the senses and a lot of other things I think I don't know I can't remember what they are on the rim uh, an awareness of the and he talks about it as you know if you try to be the hub or imagine the hub and then the interaction of your inner self with these different senses and I was asking if you were familiar with him because I wondered if you if you could validate you know that he's kind of he's taken this um, wheel as a, as a model or it even sounds anywhere near it. How do you spell his last name? S I E G S I E yeah G E L G A L G E G E L. Anyway, that's kind of what I thought the name I thought in my mind that I had seen or maybe in one of Jack's teachings. It's I, I can't. I can't speak to that because I'm not aware of his teaching, but it certainly sounds from your description as he is using this wheel because the hub is the inner, you know. I mean, in the, in, um, it's funny because in the, the traditional uh, representational image of the wheel, then, then, then greed, hatred, and delusion are the hub. But, but I mean, but that's, that's part of our nature too. So, so that's, um, but, but it's not the only part. Part. But that's why the gyroscope works for me really well, because we're just like the whole thing, and it's all going on. It does sound very much because, and next week we will talk about those other things that are on the outer rim, including the senses, and I mentioned that tonight. So he, it does sound like he is using something like that, and I'll look him up too and I'll see if he's got anything written out there. Uh, you'd find it in the book called Mind Sight. Mind Sight. That's his book? Okay. He's written several, but that's, but that's the one. Okay. Thank you very much for that.
The first time I heard the uh, talk on dependent origination, I was, you know, kind of flabbergasted. I thought it was really awesome. So I went and I Googled Tibetan Wheel of Life, and oh my gosh, there are so many beautiful depictions and explanations about what it's all about. I printed them off. I have them in my office at work. So <laughs> there, it's really, there's some really nice stuff, and it's the one I like the best was under Tibetan Wheel of Life. The artistry is really beautiful, so you can just Google that and you'll see all kinds of stuff. Thank you. Yeah, there are there are traditional tankas, and then there are a lot of modern artists who are doing who are doing Buddhist imagery of all kinds. But but the wheel is kind of a classic, so people are doing very interesting things with that, uh, including doing wheels. I think I've seen wheels, and I can't remember where now. Maybe online of. Um, with consumer culture, <laughs> you know, images around the outer edge, or, you know, and, and not exclusively, but for the senses, and I don't remember all of them. <laughs> Thank you. I'm having a hard time figuring out what is. What is the difference between one point on the wheel or another point, or why do those particular points serve as something useful about figuring out what's going on in my life and what should go on? Um, Like, why couldn't I just invent a wheel and put down as many crisis points as I felt like and, and do the same thing? Wouldn't, and coming from me, it would be more personal, of course. But why is why what's so unique about the traditional twelve spoke things? Why isn't it ten or twenty or something? You know. Um, where to start? Those are all good questions. <laughs> I think I'll start with the last one. <laughs> uh, um. And actually, I, I would have to say, I don't really know why there are there are not twenty or or not ten, but I will say, from my understanding of it, the twelve that are do work together. I it may have been a mnemonic, a memory device reason, but but they do work together, um, and you could invent something. That, that works for you, but but this is a universal application wheel. So when it, when you start with birth and then you have ignorance because you don't know anything in in a, in a way that's still kind of debatable for some people, I suppose. But um, you don't know about profound ways of being in the world as a human being, certainly. So, and then you have contact, which we can all relate, that's the next one you can all relate to, to even from children, how, how that is. You start touching, I mean, then you get, you get data, you get impressions from the outer world that come in that impact your inner world. So, and then you have the, the sense doors, um, so and then you go through. You can go through all the, through all the six senses. That's just one spoke on the wheel, but it, but each spoke is often has multiple parts in a way, multiple. So 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 they all do make sense. And then it's so and it's so. But in short, the wheel. The, this was I mean the, this was the Buddha. He was a great. Um, he had great insight into what it is to be a human being as far as many people, many, many, many human beings are concerned. I mean, this was kind of a genius thing to put, to have this one simple, like that looks so simple wheel, but that has, that contains a sort of, I think I put it, um, a dynamic of the human, human psychophysical system, you know, and how we relate inner and outer to the world. So then there's the sensors, and there's consciousness, then it goes on to where we have our feeling tone, which I did. I only mentioned a couple of them, and I will mention the whole thing, 
and then give an overview briefly because that can be kind of overwhelming. And then we'll get caught up in just the, uh, well, does this really work with that? I mean, then it gets like logical, philosophical questions arise. But really the most important thing from my point of view is that uh, to use this wheel as, it can just expand your awareness of where you can break unwholesome, unhealthy patterns. Ones that you yourself feel are like you know that they don't feel right. So this this is just another way to look at how we can get into those things. I hope that addressed some of your questions. Yeah, thank you. That that gives me a... It's sort of like there's, there's, there obviously could be many ways of of expressing all these things about how people live and they don't have to be a certain number but it's clear that they are they relate to each other they're, they're yes. not each one in, in isolation no they, they definitely relate to at all. no they relate to each other and they have a causal relation to each other too yeah. thank you Well, it's nine, so uh, maybe we could end with a, a really short um, period of mindfulness, come back into our own little gyroscope and be aware of our breathing. And be aware of our interdependence. and dedicate our practice this evening together for benefit, for the benefit of ourselves and for the benefit of all beings. <laughs>